We're going to be in Colossians chapter 4, if you'll open your Bibles there. Colossians chapter 4. And we've been here for, for a couple of months uh, anyway. And, um, you know, the big idea of the book of Colossians, as you know, if you've been here, is uh, that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And as such, he is the anchor of life. Uh, He's to be first and foremost in everything, and our lives should reflect that priority. And the truth of the matter is, is that regardless of what your belief is, you will find something in your life to anchor to, because we all do. And, and, and so man anchors himself to many things. Man anchors himself to intellectualism or he anchors himself to his own abilities, to, to his own, you know, strength and power and brain and, and might and ability to engineer the circumstance of the situation. Sometimes we anchor ourselves to relationships. You see women do this frequently and men and women both do this, but, but women seem to have the corner on the market to where a gal will bend her life around a man and she's just looking for that man that she can anchor her life to. And the fact of the matter is, is that if we anchor to anything other then Jesus Christ, ultimately that anchor will fail. See, because whatever you anchor your life to, that anchor will inevitably be tested. It will be tried. Uh, It will be worked by the elements and by the circumstances and the day-to-day waves and storms and and tumult that we will go through. And, And so Jesus, the head of the church, God incarnate, uh, he is the one that we are to anchor our lives to. And so for the past couple of months, we've been digging into the practical implications of that truth. Uh, and, and the point that Paul is building to is this, that because Jesus Christ is God, and, 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 and when we by faith profess that, believe that and begin to take action on that, well, then we are justified by him. We are made right by him. We are saved. And ultimately, we will be glorified together with him when he returns. Um, And so now it's imperative here in the now, in the living out of our lives, that we are sanctified to him. Uh, $5 Christian word, which basically means that we are set apart to God. That we are, our lives are, are now dedicated to him, set apart to him, committed to him and to his purposes. And so this is the idea that Paul has been building on through chapter 3 and into chapter 4, where uh, he is, is making the, 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 the case and the, the just expanding on the many facets of of sanctification, of what it means to be set apart. And, and what we've seen is that having our lives set apart to God means that we seek the things that are above, not the things below. Paul talks about how we set our mind on the things above, not on the things below. He talks about how the sanctified life, the set apart life, means that there are certain activities and behaviors and things that we are going to have to put off. And then there are other activities and behaviors and beliefs that we are going to have to put on. And then he goes on to detail the practicality of, hey, how can you be set apart in your marriage? 
How can you be set apart in your parenting? How can you be set apart as a Christian in the workplace? And we've looked at all of these things. And today what we're going to see is that Paul continues talking about the practical implications of how we can be set apart. And and we're going to look at how to be set apart in our prayer life. Now, where Paul's going is he's going to talk about how we can be set apart in our prayer life, how we can be set apart in our witness, how we can be set apart in our speech. And I kind of was under the the misguided, vague, hopeful expectation that we could go through all three of those today and first service proved me wrong. We're going to look at prayer today and that's what the Lord intended. We're just going to focus on that one issue. How can we be set apart to God in our prayer life? And let me set up the message this way. I'm going to use a mom-themed story in honor of Mother's Day uh, to introduce this notion of prayer. Um, In November of 2011, there was a a 10-year-old kid. His name was Kobe Sturgeon, and uh, he lived with his mom, a single mom, in Bellingham, Washington. And uh, and so they had uh, an intruder break into their house and break his mother's bedroom door down at 7 o'clock in the morning, and Kobe ran in to find this man on top of his mother attacking his mother. And so Kobe, all of 10 years old, began screaming at the intruder, trying to get him uh, to get off of and stop attacking his mom, and his screaming and his his verbal protests did nothing. And so this 10-year-old kid ran out, and he found a board, and he came back in, and he began to beat on this guy with a board. Well, as soon as he began beating on this this attacker with the board, the man immediately turned his attention from his mom, turned his attention to Kobe, and he began to chase Kobe. Now, Kobe wanted to get him off his mom, but now the guy's coming after him. And so Kobe ran for his life, and he ran out the front door, and the man right behind him chased him out the front door, and, and Kobe, he doubles back... And he runs right back into the house where his mom is waiting and she slams the door and they lock the door and now the guy's locked out. Well, like a a horror show, horror movie, you know, they, they shut the door and then the mom realizes, I've got two bedroom windows that are wide open. And so she runs back into the one bedroom to close the bedroom window and there's the guy, he's running for the window as well and she gets there a split second before he does just quick enough to get the window shut and locked and then she thinks, I got another bedroom. And so she, she's got to come out of the bedroom, run down the hall, go into the next bedroom to get to the window. Well, their attacker had six feet to travel to the next window. And so by the time she got into the next room, he was halfway back in the house. And so the mom ran to push him out the window and the guy grabbed her by the hair and he began to strike her and to hit her. And so Kobe now, when he ran out of the house, he didn't have his board. He dropped the board outside. Now he doesn't have the board anymore. And so this 10-year-old kid went and grabbed his BB gun And he ran back in. There was one of those pump actions one. And he shot the guy four times in the face. And you could just imagine if you've had it. He he must be, bam, pop, 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 bam. He's just shooting this guy as, as often as he can and had the desired effect. You know, four times, get shot in the face four times with a BB gun. The guy let go of his mom. 
and, uh, and fell back, you know, has turned his attention to the BB gun and to protect himself from that, fell back out of the window. They were able to shut the window. They were able to call 911. The police came out. They arrested the attacker. And uh, the Bellingham Police Department spokesman told the local ABC affiliate, he's like, what can I say? The kid's a hero. You just can't make this stuff up. And, and I tell you that by way of introduction because in the same way that, that this attacker was distracted by his attention taken off his objective by these, these implements of, that represented harm to him, the, the board and the BB gun. Well, the enemy's the same way with us when we focus on prayer. The moment that you as a Christian, begin to employ a weapon in your fight against our enemy, then what will happen is immediately his attention goes to that weapon to get away from that weapon or to disarm you from that weapon. And we're going to look at that in more detail as as we go. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, let's pick it up where we left off, verse 2. And we read, Paul says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, meanwhile praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. That's as far as we're going to get. And if you go back up to verse do there, you'll see that phrase, continue earnestly in prayer. Continue earnestly. You might want to circle that. Nearby, you could write this, write, write strong towards, because that's what that phrase means. He's, he's saying, continue earnestly in prayer. He's saying, be strong towards prayer. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a verb, uh, it's a, the, the phrase is, the, the word there, the Greek word, it's a verb. And, and of course, it speaks as something that is an action, an, an activity. It's continued activity. It's urgent action. And, and Paul uses this exact same phrase in Acts 2.42 when he addresses the church. He's talking about the birth and the behavior of the church. And, he, and using this phrase, here's what he says in Acts 2.42. He says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, this text, Acts 2.42, it's prescriptive for us. Some texts in the Bible aren't prescriptive texts. They're just descriptive texts. Like, for instance, when, you know, the Bible talks about, uh, you know, a some sort of a, a heinous act that happened. This is, by the way, one of the reasons we know the Bible is true. If it was made up, all the biblical characters would be painted uh, to be heroes. But the Bible doesn't paint the biblical uh, characters as heroes all the time. Sometimes it just paints them for who they were. And so we read about David. He goes up on the the roof of the palace. He should have been off at war. He sees Bathsheba taking a bath and he lusts after her, brings her over, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, kills her husband to cover it up. You know, this is the guy that the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart, right? And, And so you read that. That is not a prescriptive text. That's not suggesting that that's the way every Christian should behave. No, that's a descriptive text saying, here's what this guy did, and it was a sinful act, and it was shameful, and he should not have done that. And so sometimes we read the Bible, and it's descriptive, 
And other times we read the Bible and it's prescriptive. And so Acts 2.42 is a descriptive or is a prescriptive text in the sense that it's telling us, hey, look, here's the first church. Here's how it's being established. And in that it's being established, these are the fundamental principles that were employed in the establishment and the exercise of the faith within the church. And so we as the church, as we continue 2,000 years later, we should be doing those same things. And so with that in mind, that this is a prescription for us. A physician writes a prescription. He gives it to you. He wants you to follow that prescription, to take that medicine. And so this prescription that's given to us is that we are to continue steadfastly, ongoing, active. We are to continue uh, in these four Christian disciplines. And and they are, again, the apostles' doctrine, being in the word of God together. Fellowship. This is the, the body of Christians gathering together. No Christian is meant to be an island unto, unto himself. We're supposed to be in fellowship one with one another. And, and as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the countenance of his, of his friend. We're supposed to be those that, that spur one another on towards love and good deeds. It has to happen in the context of fellowship. And so that is one of these other Christian disciplines that's, that's encouraged. Be in the word, be in fellowship with other Christians. Christians. And, and then he says, uh, and in the breaking of bread, this is the partaking of communion, the, the partaking of the, the elements, which represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We do this every week because the Bible says that as Christians, we are to do this often. Jesus said, do this often in remembrance of me. This is that fundamental Christian discipline that we're commanded to do often. And, and we do it because it's important. It strengthens us in our faith. It reminds us that, hey, I am a sinner and I'm separated from God because of my sin. But God, because of his great love for us, demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for me. And as I partake of the bread and as I partake of the cup, I'm proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, the Bible says. I'm saying because of sin, a sacrifice had to be made and God loved mankind so much he sent his only son to pay that price, dying on the cross for our sins in our place. And and so as I partake of communion, I'm remembering that. It's a healthy thing for us to to continue in doing together. And then the the final one, and in prayers. This is the other Christian act that is so needfully important. So we need to be in the word. We need to be in fellowship. We need to be taking communion together. And we need to be praying together. And an incredibly important, super prescriptive text in that we need to be doing these things. And of these four Christian disciplines, none is more neglected today than prayer. Would you agree with me? Prayer is a Christian discipline that is sorely neglected. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, neglect of private prayer is the locust which devours the strength of the church. Leonard Ravenhill, in his book, Why Revival Tarries, he wrote this. He said, no man is greater than his prayer life, and the church today is poverty-stricken in the place of prayer. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. We have many players, but few prayers. We have many singers, but few clingers. Lots of pastors, but few wrestlers. Many fears, few tears, much fashion, 
little passion, many interferers, few intercessors, many writers, but few fighters. Failing in prayer, we fail everywhere. And is that so true? Prayer is one of those disciplines that's critically important. And so Paul contends us, he he contends with us and he exhorts us, listen, continue earnestly in prayer. Webster's Dictionary defines the word continue this way, to maintain a condition, a course, or action without interruption, and therein lies the problem. Because the moment we endeavor to pray, the enemy will turn his focus on that weapon. Just as Cody experienced, the minute he went after the enemy with a weapon, all the attention of the enemy went to that weapon. Chuck Smith describes it this way. He says, you know, when you go into prayer, you're in a fight with the enemy. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers, against the rulers and the forces of this dark age. And so what happens is in that battle, the moment we turn to prayer, it's like being in a fight in an alley with somebody and all of a sudden you pull out a knife. And now all the attention, all the focus goes on the knife. Get the knife out of the guy's hand. And so this is what happens with us. And so, you know, the enemy wants to sabotage us. I'm sitting down to prayer and what happens? My telephone starts to ring. I get into a fight with my wife. Uh, I, you know, start to remember. But this happens to me a ton. This is one of the, the biggest things. I'll sit down to pray, and all of a sudden, everything that I ever thought of that I have to do starts coming to mind. I got to do this. I got to do that. You know, and so we, we get bombarded with these things, and I'm thinking... I'll forget. I got I to gotta get up. I got to get after this. I'll just go quick. I'll quick run, go do that. And then I'll come back to pray. And the enemy knows, cool, because I'm going to, now I'm going to run and do that. And then I'm going to do, that's going to remind me of, I got to run and do that. And now I got to run and do that. And before you know it, your day's off and running and prayer has gotten lost in the wayside. The enemy's like, just get him, stop praying, just grab the knife and it'll all be good. You guys ever, do you guys go through this? You ever get attacked when you go to pray? My little dog is a, is a messenger of Satan. He's cool. <laughs> but the second we start to pray, man, Bentley wants to go out. He's scratching to go out. And he's scratching to come back in. And then he's just scratching. Whatever it is, I'm like, would you stop it? You're driving me crazy. Satan, you know? And, and so there's these things that come up. Brenda and I, we will sit down. We'll, we'll, we'll endeavor to pray. And inevitably, you know, Bentley's going crazy or the phone's ringing or, you know, you're remembering stuff. And, and I used to drive Brenda crazy because we would pray and then I would get up as we're quietly praying and, and, you know, I would do these things. Now I'm still with her in prayer, but she's like, you can't do that. You're distracting me. And I'm like, now I'm Satan. I'm being, distra- I'm, I'm being the messenger to distract my wife. And, uh, and so what we're going to do today, is, as Paul's saying, look, you got to be set apart to God. You have to be sanctified in, in, a pr- in having a prayer life. You have to continue earnestly in prayer, which, by the way, <laughs> by, by, by subtle inference means that you started in the first place, right? And so we need to continue earnestly in prayer. And what I want to do with you guys over the, just the, the next several minutes 
I just want to kind of go through with you. It's, it's, it's not an, an, an organized list, and it's not an exhaustive list. And, and by the way, I would encourage you, we've got, I wrote out a, a whole study on this on our, 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 uh, on our website, um, in the What We Believe section on the homepage. So you can go there, and there's a whole study on prayer that, that goes it, it, into things that I'm not going to cover here this morning. But, uh, but I just feel led just to kind of f- share with you a few things about how practically can we continue earnestly in prayer? And what I need you to hear about this, just, just re- real quickly, is that prayer is so vitally important for us to be committed to, and it's the most neglected. And, 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 and you know, you, you give a, a, a lesson on prayer, and we have a tendency to tune out. And so I would say, please listen, please hear, this is critical. Martin Luther said the church moves forward on its knees, and we need to move forward as a praying church. And so in in random order, uh, let's talk about prayer. And and the first thing I would say is you need to follow Jesus' model. Write it down. Follow Jesus' model when it comes to prayer life. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus' disciples came to him, and they asked him, hey, can you teach us to pray? And uh, he responded to them this way. So he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, when Jesus said this, here's how you need to pray, what he was not saying was that you need to memorize this prayer and anytime you want to pray, you need to say this. What he was not saying was, look, when you've been bad, you need to go say the Lord's Prayer 10 times in a row. He wasn't, he wasn't saying that at all. What he's saying is, here's a model, here's a template for how you are to pray. This is the attitude of which you are supposed to pray. This is, these are the things that need to be a, a, an ingredient part of your prayer. So let's break down what he talked about. First of all, he said, when you pray. Now again, <laughs> that suggests that you are praying. He didn't say if you pray. He said, when you pray. I have an expectation that you, as followers of me, Jesus would say, would be men and women of prayer. Um, Paul, writing to Timothy, I I command that, that men everywhere lift up holy hands in prayer. We're commanded in Scripture to be those that pray. So when you pray. And the Bible commands that we are to pray without ceasing. What that means is, is, is not that you're going to be praying like continually. You're all, I, I'm sorry, I can't answer the phone. I'm praying. I'm sorry, I can't do my job. I'm praying. And it's just, you know, it, it, there's that element to it. That's not what it's talking about. What the Bible means when it exhorts us to pray without ceasing is that we would have an attitude of prayer. That, that our whole life would be given over to, to, be, to be running things by God constantly. And, and so, you know, the way this works practically is not, you know, you're driving down the road, you're not going to be like, oh, Lord, you know, I pray I don't crash. You know, it's going to be, you're watching, you got your eyes open, and you're thinking, you know, whatever it is, I'm worried about this, I'm hopeful about this, I'm thankful for this. Uh, you know, you get a call that comes in, and, and all the business deals going south, and we need to, and you just, Lord, give me wisdom, Lord, give me patience, Lord, give me strength, whatever it is. There's just this constant attitude of, I'm in fellowship with God. And so, so, hey, when you pray, uh, 
pray without ceasing. But, but also, the Jews were very good about having specific times in their schedule set aside for prayer. And so that's a needful aspect of it as well. We'll get more into that in just a minute. But having, having a set-aside, dedicated time to pray. So when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven. Again, another idea here is that, well, he's, it's an intimacy. That's, that's the, the, the starting place in regards to prayer. Jesus would say, hey, remember that you're praying to your heavenly Father. It's an intimate loving thing. Now, some of you, you didn't have earthly fathers that, that were, were really good examples for you, and so the, the, you don't naturally make that connection. You know, when you, when you think about, you know, an intimate relationship with your father, for you, your earthly experience is anything but that. But we have a father who loves us, who loves us so much he would give his son for us. And so the exhortation, hey, you're my father. You gave yourself for me. You love me. You say, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You say in your word that that your thoughts towards me are more than the sand and all the seashore. God loves you with with a desperate, incredible love. And so he says there's an intimacy to it, our Father. Now, having said that, he goes on to say, hallowed be your name, which means that, you know, we need to be reverent in our prayers. We need to have a reverency. It's not the, hey, Jesus is my homeboy, you know, and, and sort of that, that, that casualness. Yes, there's the love, there's the acceptance, there's the affection, but there's also a reverence because, listen, I'm coming to my father with the idea and the hope and the expectation, you know I don't. You're God, I'm not. I, rev- I revere you, I respect you. So hallowed be your name. And then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The idea is that prayer is the seeking of God's will. You know, it's not so much, and I'll I'll touch on this in a minute, but that we we pray to get God's will in heaven, or or rather we we pray to get our will done in heaven by God, but rather we pray to get God's will in heaven done here on earth. And so it's a matter of saying, Lord, it's not about my kingdom, it's about your kingdom. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a work that you want to do. There's, there's a process that's in place here. And so what Jesus is conveying here is that our prayers need to incorporate that, that surrendered attitude of our lives to say, Lord, I'm coming to you with all of this, but I'm surrendered to you. And then he says, give us this day our daily bread. The idea being that, listen, I'm going to acknowledge that everything I have, God, comes from you. It all comes from you. The Bible says that every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no shadow of turning, not even a hint that he'll turn away from us. And so I can come to God with my needs. I can say, Lord, I have these needs. And that's so important because there's a lot of times when we come to God and we're praying for something and we pray and we think and we act like God doesn't have a clue. God, I've got that. Don't you see? Don't you care that I've got this need and I'm desperate for, Lord, please, can't you? What don't, what's going on here? And God knew you had the need before you were ever created. And he says, come to me and ask me. And so it's this attitude of, Lord, everything I have comes from you. Everything that I will have comes from you. I can cry out to you. I can ask you, give us this day. 
And then he says this, forgive us our sins. This is so key and important in our prayer life. It's this attitude of confession. The Bible says if we confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we need to be those that that keep this short account with God. Lord, I've sinned. Have mercy on me. Forgive me. Again, it, it's, it demonstrates this attitude of your God. I want to honor you. I want to serve you. And I want to run to you when I've disobeyed you and when I've displeased you because I want to be right with you. And so critical, he adds on the heels of that, forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. See, the idea being that not only do we need to confess our sins, but we need to love others who sin the way God loves us in our sin. And so, you know, Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment in the entire law? And and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he gives a freebie. He says, the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying your entire Bible, all 66 books of the Bible summed up in those two commands, love God, love others. And it's part and parcel with this issue of forgiveness. And so when we follow Jesus' model in prayer, we're doing all of these things. Forgive forgive us, Lord, and help us to be forgiving of others. And then he finally, he says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And again, that's this overarching thought of, Lord, my life is committed to bring you glory and honor. I want to honor you with my life. And I recognize that we live in a fallen world and there are temptations and the enemy, he wants to sift me like wheat. And so in prayer, I'm coming to you saying, Lord, you're the one who's conquered sin and death. You're the one who has the power that I need for myself to conquer these temptations. And so it's this complete attitude of trust and surrender and of reverence and of respect for the Lord. And as I say, it serves as a model for us. Next thing I would say to you, you could write it down, is that in this idea of that we're going to continue in prayer, that we're going to continue earnestly in prayer, we need to have a practical plan for prayer. Just a practical plan. And this is not exhaustive, and there's a lot more you could add to this, but these are just the the few things that I would throw out there. One is, um, I would recommend that you have a time of day that you have scheduled for prayer. And that's not to neglect all the other times when you need to pray, but I think that every single day you should have a time notched out in your day that's set aside for prayer, that's scheduled. See, because here's why. We schedule the things that are important to us. They make our schedule. We block it out. We protect it. And I, I think that it's needful for us as Christians to be able to have a time of day that's blocked out and that's protected and that's honored and, 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 and adhered to as, as, as much as we can, that we have a regular time of prayer. I think when we have that regular time of prayer, we should take care not to have dis- distractions in our life, that, that those are the times when we turn off the phone. Those are the times when, you know, we take the necessary steps so that, you know, the satanic dog is not going to begin doing all of his normal routine when I know he's going to do these things. Whatever it is, we need to do this. For me, when my kids were young, our regular time of prayer was when I drove them to school. 
And it was every single day I was praying with my kids and we all, it, it's, it's all right, we're going to pray. And I looked forward to it and it was, it was precious. It was really fantastic. And then after I would slow to 20 and let them tuck and roll, then that was my time to, to pray as I was driving. And, um, and that, you know, again, just that time of day, turning off the distractions. Here's something else, and this has been huge for me. I just throw it out. It's a practical thing. Take a pad of paper and a pen and just keep it with you when you pray. Because what happens is those things come to you and rather than, and like me, when I think of it, I better do it or I'm going to forget about it in two seconds. So I have the pad of paper and I write it down and it's super helpful. And, and here's what I know. Some of you hate lists. You can't stand them. You think about the list and you just become angry because of the list. Others of you are on the complete opposite page. For you, lists excite you. You're thrilled about having a list and a comprehensive list at that. And what I've discovered for me, I'm, the, I'm in the, the, the latter category. I love lists. I love having a a plan and just, you know, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this. And so what I've noticed is if I take the piece of paper and the pen, and a lot of times we want to rush into our day and it's like, you know, I've got too much to do to pray. I just need to get after it. Whereas Martin Luther was quoted as saying, I've got so much to do. I have to pray an extra three hours in my schedule, which is, you're like, it's, counterintuitive. But the issue is, man, when I set aside that time to pray, God is so gracious to me. My list is so much better and so much more comprehensive about the things that I need to do because, because that's when I'm presenting myself to God and I'm seeking the Lord and I'm asking him to direct me and I'm asking him to speak to me. And that's when my list becomes that much better and more comprehensive. And my plan for the day is, is, just such a better plan because I've, I've, I also seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you as well. All the other things are the things that we run after. They're the things that I'm trying to get down on the list. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness. And all these things come after the fact. Now, next, what I would have you write down on your list, not only have a practical plan for prayer, be vigilant in your prayer because this is what Paul says. He says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it. Now, again, the attitude is one of attendant expectancy. I'm being attendant to God with an expectancy that I'm going to hear from God. And this attitude is as opposed to what we fall into often when we get into prayer, and that is laxity and indifference. There's attendant expectancy, and then there's laxity and indifference. And we see a great picture of this in the scriptures, don't we? In the gospel. Because what happens is Jesus goes into the garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying like crazy. He's sweating drops of blood. He's pressing in. And, and so his prayer can, can be described easily as one of attendant expectancy. He's, he's being very attendant to the prayer, and he's expecting to hear from the Father. The disciples, on the other hand, they fell asleep. And that happens a lot of times when we, when we go to pray, right? It's like, now I lay me down to sleep. Oh, that sounds like a good idea. And I go to sleep. And we, we, we just kind of sort of get lackadaisical and indifferent about it. And this is what happened when the disciples were, were implored by Jesus, pray, watch and pray with me. And so Jesus comes back, he finds them asleep, Matthew 26, 41. He says, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh 
is weak. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And the, the, the language that's used in the Greek is keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. It's one of a continual, hey, do this. And, and the thing that stands out to me is that we're not the first ones asking, We're the second ones asking because he leads the way in all things. He's the initiator in all things. And Jesus is the one who asks first. He says, ask me. I'm asking you to ask me. Ask me. Seek. You know, ask, you'll be given to you. Seek, you'll find. Knock, it'll be open to you. And this active present tense of imploring us to ask him. Listen, the reason why God does this, and this is really important, you've got to hear this. The reason God wants us to ask him isn't because he wants you to be a beggar. It's not because he's saying, well, if you ask me enough, I don't want to do it for you, but you know, if you pester me enough, I will. Now, he gave that example in Scripture, but it was a negative example. It was basically saying, look, in the negative sense, if you keep asking and pestering a guy that doesn't want to do something for you, if you do it long enough, eventually he'll give in and do it for you. Jesus used that example, but his point was, well, how much more the father that wants to do for you when you ask is going to do for you. That was his point. And so this is what I want you to hear is that God wants it this way to foster an intimate relationship with us. That's why God wants you asking and seeking and knocking and pressing in. He wants that relationship with you. He wants to foster an intimate relationship with you. And that leads us right into the next point that I want to expand on. And that is this, that we need to be intimate in our prayers. Intimate with God in our prayers. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, he said this. He said, in our time, meaning in our decade or in our day and age, he says, in our time, the whole transaction of conversion has been made mechanical and spiritless. Faith now uh, may now be exercised without a jar to the moral life and without embarrassment to the edemic ego. Christ may be received without creating any special love for him in the soul of the receiver. The, the man is saved, but he's not hungry nor thirsty after God. In fact, he is specifically taught to be satisfied as, and is encouraged to be content with little. Here's what he means. He basically means, hey, this, this age of just say the prayer. Just say the prayer and you're in. Just, just pray it. Just, just, just say the prayer and, and, and you know, and, you know you'll, it's like playing a country western song backwards. You're going to get your car back and you're going to get your dog back and you're going to get your wife back. Just, just say the prayer, you know. And the issue here is that it is really this, that, that a lot of people in their prayer life, they, they, they approach God like he's, a, like he's a pinata. And if I just beat him enough, then eventually all the goodies are going to fall out. So I'm just going to ask and seek, and I'm just going to the pinata. He's the genie in the bottle. He's the spare tire in the trunk. Pick a, pick a metaphor. You know, I, I just keep him in my trunk, and when I get a flat tire, I pull over and interrupt my life so that I can, you know, get, take Jesus' spare out and put him on. You know, and there's a lot of people that approach their faith in that way. And that's, that's, that's not the idea. That's not what God wants. God wants us intimate. He wants us connected. He doesn't want us to have this attitude of, I'm, I'm approaching God like a pinata. He wants us approaching God like he's my father. And there's an ocean of difference between the two. Because one focuses on what you receive. 
The other focuses on a relationship. And that's what God wants, is he wants that relationship with us. Speaking to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul said this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul's desire was to know God. The word that's used there speaks of an intimate, experiential knowledge, and it's one that comes through relationship. It's one that comes through a a, a connected prayer life. This is the idea here. Again, A.W. Tozer speaking said, come near to the holy men and women of the past and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for him night and day, in season and out. And, And when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the longing, or rather for the long seeking. And I ask you, are you seeking God that way? Is that the desire of your heart? Are you, do you have this longing after God? I want you to note also in my next point that Paul adds that we need to pray with thanksgiving. Our prayers need to be with thankfulness, with an attitude of, of thankfulness. See, thankfulness, and we've talked about this before, when I pray with thankfulness, it emboldens me as I remember God's faithfulness to me. When I'm coming to God, and, and let's face it, a lot of times when we come to God, it's like I'm, I'm facing Goliath, and, and I'm scared, and God help me. And then when I have an attitude of thankfulness in my prayer, well, then what I remember is, oh, wait a minute. I didn't face Goliath before, but I faced a lion before, and I prayed, and God delivered me then. Oh, and then there was that time when I faced a bear, and, and God helped me to fight and overcome the bear. And so now, oh, this is a giant, you know what? It's nothing for God. The lion was overwhelming for me. The bear was overwhelming for me. God delivered me both those times. He'll deliver me now. And so thankfulness indeed does that. But there's, there's another aspect of praying with thankfulness that I, I, I want you to get this morning. It's important for us to remember that prayer isn't, as I said earlier, about our will being done in heaven. It's about God's will being done on earth. See, Maintaining a thankful heart simply means that we can be thankful knowing that whatever we ask, God knows what's best for us and he's promised to give it. That's this thankfulness. I can go to God saying, I don't have a clue how you're gonna get me out of this one, God, but I can come to you with thankfulness because I know that one way or the other, you're gonna deliver me and I can trust in you. And so I can come to you with thankfulness knowing, well, thank God you're here. You know, thank you, Lord. You ever, you ever felt that way? I remember I got a phone call years ago. I was supposed to go out, out of the country on a, on a missions trip, and, and everybody that was supposed to go had fallen out, and I was the only one going, and I'd never been there before. We were actually going to the island of Borneo, uh, where the Dayaks and the Madurans, the, these two tribes, had fought against one another, and the Dayaks were the original headhunters, and so they had killed the Madurans, and they were actually eating them and selling their body parts on the side of the road. And the government had set up these, these, these refuge camps that were just horrible, deplorable conditions. And so the, the mission trip that we were going to take was completely changed. And now I'm going into Borneo to put together, because of my medical background, to put together a, a medical relief team. And everybody that had been there before, nobody's a part of the team. So I'm going, and I've never been there before. I'm like... Are you kidding me? 
And then, well, who's going with me? And they named the names of a couple of the guys that were going with me. And immediately it was like, oh, thank God he's going. It just did, it was just sort of, you know, there was this guy that was going to be with me. And, and I tell you that story because a lot of times in prayer, if we have this attitude of thankfulness, the idea is, oh my, I don't know. What, the, what am I going to do? And I'm freaking out. And then it's a matter of just saying, well, thank you, Lord. I can bring this to you. I can cry out to you. I can trust in you. James 1.17, I quoted it earlier, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and come down, comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. Jesus said in John 14.13, and whatsoever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, again, this isn't that God's a genie in a bottle. It isn't that he's the celestial pinata that I can beat on. I have to ask it in his name. I have to ask it according to his will, right? That's, that's, that's the idea. You come to me, whatever you ask in my name, that's the promise I will do. And I've had some people, they push me on that. And they're like, well, that's, what kind of a promise is that? You, you, you have to, there's conditions. You have to ask in his name. You, you, you have to ask that something that's in accordance to his will. Well, doesn't that mean that God just says, well, if you do what I want you to do, then I'll let you do it? Well, that's easy to say. I'll say that to anybody in this room. You do what I want you to do, I'll let you do it. And I've had people ask me that about God. And here's, here's the best way I can, I can give an answer to that. What that's saying is that me, I'm going to go to the creator of the universe who holds the molecules of your body together, who spoke you into existence, who, who lives outside of time and knows the future, the past, present. He, 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 sees, he sees it all. He knows the end from the beginning. And I'm going to come to him with my situation that I'm dealing with here and now, and I'm going to go to him and I'm going to say, hey, I'm, going to, I'm asking you about this, but I don't want to ask in your will. I don't want to ask you know, in, in, in your wisdom. I'm just going to tell you, Jeannie, that I want this wish. You, you, you see how foolish that sounds? I took my granddaughter, um, Willow, to, to Chuck E. Cheese, and uh, we were there last week, and we were coming out of the, um, it's too generous to call it a restaurant, but I was coming out of Chuck E. Cheese, and um, so we're on our way out. It's so funny, because we went again yesterday to go out and do something, and she was saying from the backseat, no Chuck E. Cheese, no Chuck E. Cheese. She'd had enough. But um, we were coming out of the restaurant, and I was holding her, and she says, Papa, I want to go down. Put me down. So I'm like, okay, sweetie. So I put her down, because you know when your kids want to go down, they've got a way of becoming 10,000 pounds, and they've got a way of, you know, twisting, and it's just like, go down already. So I put her down, and I take her hand. We're walking out into the parking lot. And, and Willow, she doesn't want to take my hand. You ever been there with your kids? You want to hold your kid's hand and they like wriggle around, they pull against it. The worst is when they just plop down, they sit down. You know, it's, it's, it's their nonviolent protest right there. They just lay down, like arrest me, I'm not going. And so Willow's doing all of these things. I'm like, sweetheart, no, come on. I need to hold your hand. And, and you know, she's two. So, I, I, you know, sweetheart, there's cars and you need, she doesn't hear any of it. She doesn't care. All she knows, she wants me to let go. She, she can run through the parking lot. Well, I'm not going to let her run through the parking lot. I'm her father. I know what's best for her. That's the idea of having this thankful heart in prayer because when we come to God, we can be thankful going, you know what? I don't know about all the cars that are threatening to run me over. I don't know what's, you know, you know all the trouble that awaits me. So thankfully, I can just trust in you. I'm just going to hold your hand in prayer, Lord, and I'm going to trust in you. That's the idea. 
Jesus said this. He said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so the, the, the question is, are you asking him? And are you surrendered and submitted to, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done? Well, real quickly, let's look at verse 3 and 4, because I want to draw out uh, a couple uh, quick things. Um, Meanwhile, Paul says, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest, clear, just a detailed accounting of, hey, here's, here's the straightforward presentation of the gospel. I want to make it loud and clear, very, very concise. I want to make it manifest as I ought to speak. What I would say, the point I'd I'd beg you to write down, pray, pray for me as your pastor, pray for our pastors on staff, pray for us. We desperately need your prayers. Paul told Timothy, therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Uh, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Listen, here's what I would say. If Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, needs to write to this church and say, please pray for me, how much more do your pastors need to, to say to you, please pray for us? Pray for us. And I would beg you, if you would, you know, especially Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, if you would just say, pray for Pastor Ted, you could write loser in parentheses, I don't care. Just pray for me. Those, those are the days when I'm, I'm seeking the Lord for wisdom in terms of vision and, and direction. Those are the days that I'm putting together the message for Sunday. Those are the days that I'm, that I'm working on how I should lead you, how I should instruct you. And I desperately need you. You can pray for me every single day. I have people in the church, they'll come up to me. They have their little kids and, and they'll tell me, uh, my child prays for you every night. I'm like, cool, because your child has a direct hotline right to the heart of Jesus, man. And thank you, Lord. I mean, yes, pray for me. Um, And I'll tell you guys a a couple of things. Pray for our teaching. Pray that the word of God would go out strong. Definitely pray for that. And I want to share with you, um, pray that the Lord would give to us protection. We see pastors uh, just across the nation in our valley even, you know, falling and having problems and, and, and pray for us. We need to be protected. Um, pray that the Lord would give to, to us wisdom. And, um, and I just share this with you real quick. Right now, we as a church are, we are blessed to be here at Linfield. We love the, the school. They love us. We enjoy a wonderful relationship. And, uh, and, and, you know, we pray thankfully, thank you, Lord, for that. I'm not looking to leave here anytime soon, but at the same time, as I look down the road, there's, we got to leave at some point. We need, we need a home. Uh, and, and so I, I, I'm praying and I'm asking the Lord for wisdom uh, for this. And, um, and as we're doing this, we've looked at various buildings and just one right after another, door shut, door shut, door shut. 
Well, we have a door that hasn't been shut. I'm not saying it, it, it's, I mean, it's not even, I, done deal isn't even part of the equation. It's a possibility, but it's five miles from here. And I'm, and I'm wrestling with that because I, I really feel like I want to be here in this, in this immediate area. And so I'm asking you to pray for us and, and with us that the Lord would give us wisdom if he wants us to go to the, in this direction or not. And I need like, Real, cl- I mean, like door shut, like they call up and say, you know, you lose, uh, it's not available. I want those kinds of signs. I don't want to make a, a mistake. And, and this is, you know, this is not even a slam dunk. It's like a building. It's, it's like a lease situation. It's a couple hundred thousand dollars for, for tenant improvements. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of issues. We ain't got a couple hundred thousand dollars, in case you were wondering, well, you know. And so... Um, we need, I mean, we need a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm asking the Lord, would you have somebody call me up and give us a building? You know, would you have somebody write us a check for a million dollars? I don't, whatever. You own the cattle on a thousand hills, would you sell them and send us the money kind of thing? I, you know, we need you to pray. And so here's what we've done as a leadership. What we've done is, is um, we've all set our alarms every day for 12 o'clock. And at 12 o'clock every single day, that's when we pray, just to say, Lord, you give us the building you want to give us when you want to give it to us. You give us the money for a building fund. You get a, give us the money for the tenant improvements and all. And I would just ask you guys, would you set your alarms? And would you pray with us as we seek the Lord? And I'm so excited because I know that as we pray, God will move through the prayers of his people. And so I, I'm, I'm just asking you to pray. And, um, and just pray about all these things. We, we have, you know, financial needs. We have building needs. Pray. Commit it to prayer. And, uh, and would you guys please do that? Would you? Yes? Amen. All right, you said it. I got you on tape. All right, so um, pray, pray for us. Um, in Mark chapter 13, I just want to wrap this up real quick. Mark chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable. And in the telling of the parable, basically, um, he talks about this, this man who has all these servants, and he goes into a foreign country. And as he goes into a foreign country to do business, he tells his servants that they got work to do while he's gone. He says, I'm coming back. And when he comes back, they're all asleep. And, and so, you know, uh, rightly, they're, they're in Dutch with, with their master. And, and basically, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And the, the point that Jesus was making in telling that story was basically saying, look, I'm coming again, and, and when I come, you know, in my absence right now, there's work that needs to be done, and I need you all to be doing that work. That was his point. And, and listen to what he said, Mark 13, 33, just kind of punctuating this. He said, take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is, when the time that I'm going to be coming back is, when I'm going to give, ask you to give an accounting for your life and for your stewardship of your life. And, and the issue is, watch and pray, watch and pray. And I'm asking you, are you watching and praying? Because that's the job that he's commanded us to do. I close on this point. Last point, put feet on your prayers. Put feet on your prayers. See, the issue is, is that it's not just that we pray and then we don't do anything. No, we are called to, to pray and then to take action on our prayers. Again, it's like we're called, Martin Luther said, pray like everything depends on God, but work like everything depends on you. And that's what we're called to do. If you read Nehemiah chapter four, this exact same thing happened. 
where the, the, the opposition had a plan to attack the Jews as they were working to rebuild the wall. The Jews found out about their plan. And in Nehemiah 4, we read this, and it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. And so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears, the shields, the, bow, the bows, and wore armor and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his own sword at his side as he built and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. We are to watch and we are to work. And, uh, and I just close with this. It's been said that when a farmer uh, prays for his crops, he says amen with a plow. And so I'm asking you that as you pray, that you, you pray like everything depends on God, but you work like everything depends on you. That spiritually, metaphorically speaking, you're not sitting on the couch, you know, eating bonbons, but rather you're saying, Lord, give me a job, and then you're filling out 20 job applications. You're saying, Lord, give us a building, and then you're, you know, needfully uh, contributing to, to, to that work. That, that when you say, Lord, uh, we'll stay at Linfield as long as you want, and we're content to stay here, that then you'll come help. Because, man, there is a lot of work to do, and the numbers are shrinking. You should have seen it. it's Mother's Day today. We had, like, nobody to help set up. And it got done because God's God. But the thing is, we need to say amen with a plow. Amen?